You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. And so Romans chapter 8, all about these promises of glorification that what's supposed to be accomplished in our life is going to be accomplished in our life. Uh, the Holy Spirit's there to give us victory over sin. So even, in, uh, even though we see in Romans 7 that um, the, the law's there and we can't keep the law, even though we want to keep the law, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live obediently in Romans chapter 8, that we can find victory. Not perfection here on this earth, but we can find what we would call victory within the, within the Christian church. Um, and so all these promises are made, and then Paul introduces the, the anticipated question of, well, can I trust that these promises are going to happen? Because it doesn't look like God's kept promises to the Old Testament people. It doesn't look like God kept promises to his old people in the old covenant, Israel seems to have failed. Israel seems to have faltered. Uh, Is God starting over with a new plan? And so Paul wants to address the fact that God's promises have been kept, that God's plan is still intact, that nothing has changed, that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite Israel's unbelief, nothing has caught God by surprise. And in fact, it was anticipated, it was planned, um, it's exactly how it should be. And so Paul highlights the fact that it's a remnant of Israel that was going to be saved all along. So Romans 9 secured the promises of Romans 8. I told you last week that Romans 9 is offensive if you believe that God owes equal opportunity for salvation to everyone. So obviously Romans 9 highlights doctrines of predestination and election and God's choosing and how that plays out in time. And I told you that it's offensive if we approach it with the mindset, well, God owes something to everybody. He owes equal opportunity. If God's going to save anybody, then he's obligated to make it available to everybody. Um, and we said that ultimately that, uh, that takes away from what God's mercy is, that God's mercy, by definition, is something that we do not deserve. So to argue that everybody deserves an opportunity is to minimize and diminish God's mercy. And so it's offensive if we believe that God owes something to everybody. What we find in Romans 9 is that God owes nothing to anybody. Ultimately, we approach Romans 9 with a, with a desire and a heart to see people saved, ultimately to see all people saved. And we see that heart in God uh, as he writes to us in his scripture that he has a desire for people to be saved, but there's a greater desire than that desire for all to be saved. And that desire is for him to receive ultimate maximum glory. And what we see in Romans 9 is that God receives glory by offering mercy to some and not to others. Um, And it's clearly defined for us there in Romans chapter 9. We see that God's faithful, keeps his promises. God is just. He acts according to his character. He does what is right and good. And that ultimately God is not unfair. uh, That he works in such a way that his mercy shines against the backdrop of his wrath. He's obligated to be glorious not to be universalistic, meaning he's, ob- he's obligated to be glorious. He's not obligated to save everybody, and that does not violate who he is as God. For him not to be glorious would violate him being God. And what we see in Romans 9 is that he is committed to being as glorious as possible, even if that at times is difficult for us to swallow. I mean, I told you that Romans 9 will never be as beautiful as it needs to be. It will never capture your heart the way that it needs to and the way that Paul intends for it to based on one sermon alone. That it necessitates you being in the Word, you studying what Romans 9 says in light of the rest of Scripture and seeing God's glory and His freedom to do what He wants to do separate from who we are. 
that study has to happen in your life before this chapter really is as glorious and as beautiful as it needs to be. Which brings us now to Romans chapter 10. So if Romans chapter 9 rubbed us the wrong way in the sense that uh, it was offensive, it's because we were discussing what God uh, was obligated to do and what God's not obligated to do. Romans 10 has the possibility of being just as offensive because it addresses what we are obligated to do and not obligated to do. Um, And that can be offensive as well because there's some challenge here as we see man's responsibility in salvation in light of what we've seen about God's sovereignty over salvation in Romans chapter 9. So Romans chapter 10 brings us to man's responsibility in salvation. Now as a means of introduction, just to kind of help us see how chapters 9, 10, and 11 fit together, chapter 9 is all about the the past history of Israel, Uh, specifically starting in time past before the beginning of the world, then we see some Old Testament examples there, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Moses, uh, Israel's interaction with Pharaoh. So Israel's past, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 10 is Israel's present. What's happening with Israel in the present? So Paul's present, our present. Romans chapter 11 is what's going to happen in the future of Israel. Okay, so 9, 10, and 11 give us a picture of Israel's past, Israel's present, and then Israel's future. Um, So in the coming weeks, we'll see the future of Israel as well when we get to Romans chapter 11. What we see here in Romans chapter 10, four points that I want to give you today, and um, we're going to work through this because ultimately we're going to get to a point of application where I want to give you some time to meditate on what we've talked about today and begin to work out what what application looks like for you in your life. Uh, We're going to look at the accessibility of the gospel today. We're going to look at the universality of the gospel today the responsibility that we have with the gospel, and then ultimately the accountability that we have with the gospel. So first here in our notes, the accessibility of the gospel. What we see here in Romans chapter 10 is that the gospel is accessible. It's an obedient call for us to believe, not to perform. It's accessible to all of us. The gospel is accessible to us, and really it's accessible to everyone in a way that the law-type salvation would not be. If, if we were basing our salvation on the law, it would obviously exclude people that can't obey the law. So we know that you have to be perfect to get to heaven. The, the, the law mindset of gospel would not be accessible to everybody. It would, it would naturally preclude what we know to be everybody. But even if it was possible for some to be obedient to the law, it would necessarily exclude a lot. But what we find in the gospel is that it's accessible by means that it calls us to believe, not to perform. And what's glorious about the gospel is that it allows for deathbed conversions, right? It allows for the guy on the cross who has lived a life of sin, who has rejected any knowledge that he has about his creator, who's being killed because he's a thief, so he's not content with what God has given him. He's not content in his circumstances. He's sought to take from others. He's being killed on the cross, and yet it's at that very point where he's taking his final breaths that he goes from eternity in hell to eternity with Christ in paradise. The gospel allows for that. And when we hear stories of it, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like those stories. You know, hey, you you won't believe so-and-so, life of sin, and he got saved in the hospital right before he died. We typically doubt those, right? We're like, "Eh, I'd really like to see some works after that to validate that he really meant it. 
Or we say, that's not fair. Like that guy got to live a whole lifestyle of sin and do everything that he wanted. And then at the very end, he gets to switch sides and gets all the benefits of heaven. And a lot of times we view it as, man, he got the best of both worlds, right? Like he got a world of sin where he got to do what his flesh wanted to do, and now he gets eternity. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel, but the the, the glorious truth of the gospel is that it allows for deathbed conversions because it's not based on performance. It's based on our belief. It's based on our trust in the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness. It's accessible. It It doesn't exclude anybody based on performance. It allows for anyone to come. In light of everything that we talked about in Romans chapter 9, what we're going to see over and over in Romans chapter 10 is whoever, whoever, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Underneath the accessibility of the gospel, first of all, the gospel calls us to pray to a sovereign God. The gospel calls us to pray to a sovereign God. God's sovereignty should never deter us from praying or from caring. See, it'd be real easy to grow fatalistic after what we heard in Romans 9 last week. Well, things that are supposed to happen are going to happen. Remember, we walked through all those agreement points. Everybody that's supposed to get saved is going to get saved. Nobody's going to surprise God. Nobody makes a last-minute switch that God was unprepared for. So basically what we established, even though it's difficult, most all of us would agree what's going to happen is going to happen. It was set in time. It was set in place before the beginning of time. It will happen the way that God intends for it to. So we can be real easy to become fatalistic and say, why should I care? What's going to happen is going to happen. Why should I care about the people of Sonoy? Why should I care about the people of Griffin? Why should I care about the people of Noonan? If they're supposed to get saved, they're going to get saved. It does no good to pray for them, and it does no good for me to waste tears and and care upon them because what God wants to do, he's going to do. It would be very easy to apply Romans 9 in that way. And what we find in Romans chapter 10 is Paul does not allow for that. Look what he says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul, who would understand Romans 9 better than any of us, says, application for Romans 9, I pray to a sovereign God and I care about people's salvation. I don't sit back and just hope that it happens or just trust that it will happen. I am involving myself in this sovereign plan of Romans chapter 9. I'm jumping head on in. I care about people. I care about the people around me. And he's already admitted that a lot of these people aren't going to get saved, right? He's already admitted that only a remnant of Israel is going to be saved. But he says, I'm on my knees praying for these people. I care for these people. As he's already said in Romans chapter 9, I'm willing to give up my salvation if that were possible for these people. His understanding of God's sovereignty has not affected his level of involvement in any way. Ultimately, the incentive here for us to pray is that the only kind of God who could answer prayer is a sovereign God. We can actually pray confidently. He has the power and the ability to answer our prayers. Imagine if we were praying to a God who wasn't the God of Romans chapter 9. Imagine praying for people's salvation if God did not do the things that he does in Romans chapter 9. Remember we said that God necessarily violates our freedom of will to bring us to salvation because if left to ourselves, we would never come to Christ. 
And we all agreed, I think, last week that we pray, even though maybe some of us are slower than others to come to to realize some of the things of Romans chapter 9, we've all been for years praying to God, change people's hearts. Change the heart of my son. Change the heart of my mom. Change the heart of my aunt. God, work in their heart. Change their desires. Bring them to salvation. We pray that way. We pray that way. We expect those type of things to happen. And we're able to pray that way because we serve a sovereign God who doesn't sit back and say, hey, don't don't involve me. This is totally up to them. If they want to be saved, then it's totally up to them. I'm not going to get involved in this. I've made the gospel known. It's up to everybody else to respond to it. No, we pray to a God and we say, God, get involved in this. Get involved in their heart. Don't let them make this choice. Change them. And we can pray that way. Paul says we can pray that way because we serve a God who works that way. Paul prays based on God's sovereignty. We pray to a sovereign God for salvation of sinful man because it's a sovereign God who doesn't have to give sinful man what he deserves. So we can pray to a merciful God, a God who bestows mercy on who he will, who bestows compassion on who he will, bestows wrath on who he will. We can pray to that type of God because he's a God that's obligated to be glorious. He doesn't have to be universalistic, meaning he doesn't have to save everybody, and he doesn't have to be so wrathful that he punishes everybody. He's a free God with his mercy, and we can pray to that sovereign God asking for his mercy because it's only he who is a sovereign God that can give that type of mercy. Paul says, I pray for my people. I pray for my kinsmen. I love my kinsmen. I want to see their salvation. And I'm going to involve myself in their salvation. The gospel calls us to pray to a sovereign God. Secondly, the gospel calls us to be passionate and knowledgeable. The gospel calls us to be passionate and knowledgeable. He says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's describing Israel here. What, what's, what, what does he mean by they have a zeal without knowledge? What, what does he mean by that? What does that look like in, in real-time narrative type sense? Give me, give me examples of how the Israelites had zeal without knowledge. Okay, they were striving for God, they were making up rules, uh, trying to be holy. Other thoughts, how were, they, how were they full of zeal but without knowledge? Okay, they were very zealous in trying to rid the world of Christianity. Um, and it was based on a lack of knowledge of, of who Christ was. Other examples. Okay, yeah, even in their zealousness for the law, they were, they were majoring on minor things within the law and neglecting the major things of the law. That's why Christ has to call them back to an attitude of love versus just keep trying to keep the letter of the law. Uh, so they were very zealous. They were very passionate. 
Uh, they were passionate for God and they were passionate for the law, but it was, it was flowing from bad knowledge. I mean, if you, if you had sat down uh, the Pharisees that had worked towards the crucifixion of Jesus, they would have told you it was based on their love for God. This man is claiming to be God. And because they did not believe him to be God, the only thing that made sense was to kill him. So it was their, their zealous desire to see God's name honored that led them to crucify Christ. It was their zealousness for the law and trying to keep the law that caused them to miss Christ. These people were zealous. Paul even describes himself within that Jewish community as being very zealous. In Acts 22 Three through five, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, I know what it's like to be zealous without knowledge. I was guilty of it. I was passionate. I was killing people out of passion for God. It was misdirected passion, but there was no lack of passion there. There's other examples today of, of people who were, who were acting out of um, acting zealously out of bad knowledge. I mean, the first that come to mind are, would be the Mormons. I mean, they're giving up two years of their life. They're moving all over the place, leaving their families behind. And every single day they get up early and they go to bed late. And they walk around. And they share what they believe to be the gospel. And it's because they're zealous. They're zealous for a God that they believe exists. They're zealous for a law that they believe God wants us to keep to earn his favor. And it drives them. It drives them to get up early and to go to bed late. It drives them to the ends of the earth. They are zealous. But it's a lack of knowledge that causes all of their passion to be for naught. That on the day of judgment, they're going to find that they've wasted their life. Not because they weren't passionate, not because they weren't zealous, because they lacked knowledge. Their, their passion was misdirected. So in your notes there, zeal without full knowledge is dangerous. Zeal without full knowledge is dangerous. Nobody would doubt the passion of the Mormons. Nobody would have doubted the passion that Paul had. And what's tragic here is that knowledge was available to Israel, but they rejected it. Remember in, in Romans chapter 9, they had all the privileges possible. They had the prophets, they had the patriarchs, they had the Old Testament law. They had everything in place to know God's plan, and they had rejected it. So that's the tragedy that Paul feels here. It says in verse 3, for being ignorant. Now we see ignorant, it's not as though they didn't know it's more the idea of ignoring what they had. So it's not that they were ignorant of God's righteousness. It's that they ignored God's righteousness revealed to them in the Old Testament law. They, they ignored it. It's not that they were ignorant because they were un, it was unavailable to them. They're ignorant because they choose to be ignorant because they ignore what God had made available to them. Zeal without full knowledge is dangerous. 
But next there in your notes, while this isn't a point that Paul draws upon, I believe it's necessary for us, full knowledge without zeal is ridiculous. Full knowledge without zeal is ridiculous. Now I'm going to pose the question, and we're going to come back to this, but the question is, are, are we guilty of this? See, you, nobody questions the zeal of the Mormons. It's the knowledge that we question. My fear, though, is in, in our church and in surrounding Bible-believing, um, Reformed tradition churches, is that nobody would doubt our knowledge. It's our zeal that they would question. It's, it's not a lack of knowledge, and it's not even an ignoring of the knowledge. We're very good at embracing knowledge. We're very good at coming and being, being excited. Oh, today we're looking at Romans 9. How's Adam going to handle that? The question that, that is probably going to be asked about us more is, where's the zeal? Where's the zeal that's supposed to flow from this knowledge? You have one group of people that are zealous. I mean, they are passionate. Nobody doubts it. Nobody questions the commitment of the Mormons. We see them all the time in our communities. It's the knowledge that we question. My question, and we'll come back to this, is people probably aren't going to doubt our knowledge. It's the zeal, the passion that they're going to doubt when it comes to our church. We'll come back to this and talk about it more. Next there, the gospel calls us to submit to a righteousness that's not our own. The gospel calls us to submit to a righteousness that's not our own. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. The gospel calls us to submit to our righteousness, not our own. Israel was guilty of seeking rather than submitting. They were relying on their own righteousness by their works. Paul tells us here we must submit to the righteousness of Christ by believing he is better than we ever could be. That's the call here. That's what the gospel demands of us, is that we submit to a man who lived a life better than we could ever live it. And it's, a, it's offensive to our pride. It's offensive to everything inside of us that says, I can fix this problem. I can fix this sin problem. I can make up for it. I can atone for it. And it's difficult. It's laying down of our pride to say, I can't. I can't fix this. I'm too messed up. I'm too torn up. I'm too broken. The only hope that I have is that somebody would do it for me. We don't like to admit that other people have to do things for us. And this is the ultimate admittance that we cannot earn God's favor. And Israel was guilty of this. Leviticus 18.15. Leviticus 18.5. Not 15. Things about uncovering the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. Don't do that. Don't do that. But it has nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. 
Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The expectation there was if you do this, then you can live. The only problem is that Israel was incapable of doing it. That's why God had to build into his law the sacrifice system. It was meant to show them that, yes, if anybody could ever come along and do this, they would live. But time after time, day after day, people in Israel would die because they were incapable of doing this. Animals would have to die regularly because Israel was incapable of doing this. James reminds us that if we cannot keep the whole law, then we have not kept the law, even in our best efforts. Philippians 3.9, even Paul had to come to this point. Despite all of his history, despite all of his zeal, he even says in Philippians 3.6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. He comes to verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Even Paul had to come to that realization that um, in all of my best efforts, in all of my zeal and passion for God, I still fall short. When I embrace the full knowledge of who I am and who he is, I fall short of his demands. And it's only by Christ that I can hope to be saved. Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We talked a little bit about this in um, our discussion of covenant theology, new covenant theology, and what both have to say about the law. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, So Jesus doesn't show up and set aside the law in the sense of, Okay, this was for Old Testament people. Let's, let's do something new now. Let's do something different. No, Jesus shows up under that law and says, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to do what Leviticus 18.5 says. I am going to do it and live by it and earn eternal life. So Jesus comes to establish the law. He comes to fulfill the law. And by doing so, he is now the end of the law for us. So think of it this way. If, if we're trying to get to righteousness... The thought process is we have to go down the route of the law to get there. And in trying to do that, we never make it to the end. We find roadblocks, we find detours, we never make it to the end. Paul says Christ travels the route of righteousness for us. He gets to the end. He makes it to the end. And now through faith, we skip the route. We skip the road of law and we get to come to the end. Think of it this way. Um, maybe you have a family vacation that you take regularly. I know for us, we go to a certain area of Florida. Uh, it used to be Panama City. Now it's Cape Sandblast. But most of the route is the same. And a lot of times when you're getting ready, you're packing up, you start to say to yourself, man, I wish we could just be there, right? Like, I wish we could just get there now. Like, you start thinking about the drive to Columbus, which isn't too bad. Then it's the drive to Eufaula, and it's like, ah, still not so bad. Eufaula to Dothan is awful. And then Dothan to the beach is dreadful. And guys that went on the shark trip know there's portions of that trip. It is absolutely dreadful to drive. There's nothing. There's just, just barrenness, nothing to look at. 
Imagine, imagine how amazing it would be to say, hey, you want to go shark fishing? Yeah, we have a transporter that when we're ready to go, it just gets us there. We skip the five and a half, six and a half hour drive to get there. That's what Christ accomplishes for us. We don't have to take the road of obeying the law to get to righteousness. We skip it. We're transported to the very end. We bypass that long, grinding road of obedience to earn God's favor, and we're automatically put there at the end. He's the end of the law. He's the end of the route. He's where righteousness waits for us. And when we're saved, we skip it, and we come all the way to the very end, and we are declared righteous because he traveled it for us. The gospel calls us to submit to that type of righteousness. Christ terminates the weight of the law that's hanging over us. He terminates it. The expectation is no longer that we have to obey it to earn God's favor. It's been earned for us. All right, the gospel is acceptable. It's accessible because it does not require performance. Okay? It calls us to submit to a righteousness um, that's not our own which makes it available to anybody and everybody at any point in their life, even the guy at the very end of his life, the gospel's still available, it's still accessible to him. Number two, the universality of the gospel. The gospel invitation is for whosoever, not a select group. God never commands us to go find chosen people. And he never gives us a list of chosen people to go share the gospel with. The communication always in the gospel, always in that message is whosoever will come will be accepted. Nobody will be cast away. The gospel, first thing under that section, the gospel is within reach of all. It's within reach of all. Look what Paul says back in Romans 10. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul says the gospel is close to us. It's within reach. It's within reach of our heart. It's in reach of our mouth. What does he mean by uh, don't say in your heart who's going to ascend up into into heaven or uh, who's going to say Uh, who's going to descend down into the abyss. What he's saying is is that we don't have to climb the highest heights or plumb the deepest depths to find Christ. We don't have to go on this, this lifelong journey to find salvation. We don't have to scale the highest heights or plumb the deepest depths to try to find answers to how to be right with God. The incarnation happened. Christ came from heaven to here so that we didn't have to climb. Christ died in our place and was resurrected so that we didn't have to go dig him up. It's close to us. Salvation has been made close to us. We don't have to go searching for it. We don't have to take this lifelong trek to figure out all these answers to life's questions. Christ is near to us. He's near to our hearts. He's near to our mouths. Secondly, the gospel is made available to all. It's within reach of all and it's made available to all. The exclusivity of the law-based salvation doesn't exist within the gospel. We've already said that. Law would limit who? The gospel opens the door for anybody. Anybody that believes. It says in verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever believes, Jew or Greek, all that call on him. Now we know from Romans chapter 9 that not everybody will call upon him. And we know that only people who the Holy Spirit is working in will call on him. But we're not given the information that that allows us to know who the ones that are going to get saved are and who the ones that aren't going to get saved are. And so because of that, we approach it with this universalistic mindset. I'm taking the gospel to everybody. And the ones that are supposed to respond to it will. And the ones that aren't going to respond to it won't. And in the same way that we saw in Romans chapter 9, we probably would have chosen differently. We would have chosen um, Esau, probably over Jacob. He was the firstborn. That, that would make sense to us. He's the one that should get the privileges. Um, Abraham wanted to choose Ishmael. Didn't know about Isaac yet, but was so in love with his son Ishmael, wanted Ishmael to be the chosen one. In the same way that God worked against man's preferences and man's choices in Romans chapter 9, we too have to be careful that we don't expect God to work in certain ways that it causes us to not share the gospel with people that we would say, well, they're probably in that group that doesn't get saved. They're probably in that group that won't accept. We approach it as anybody who comes gets saved. Anybody. So I'm going to share it with everybody. I'm not going to get into who is and who isn't going to come. That's, that's God in Romans chapter 9. What I see as my responsibility is, is that whoever comes, I'm supposed to share it. And so we have a responsibility to, to take that and go with it. We're going to talk more as to, as to what that looks like within the context of our church. The gospel, there's, there's, a, there's a universal aspect to the gospel. We see in Romans chapter 9 that it's not going to bring in everybody. But the approach that we're to take is to get it to everybody. Which brings us to point number three, the responsibility with the gospel. The responsibility with the gospel. The gospel response relies on human evangelism, not misapplied sovereignty. Gospel responses rely on human evangelism, not misapplied sovereignty. Meaning, we don't have the right as Christians, we don't have the right as Sovereign Hope Church to sit back and say, I believe everything in Romans chapter 9, which means that everybody that's supposed to get saved is going to get saved, so I'm going to sit back and watch people get saved that are supposed to get saved. Paul does not afford us that luxury. Is it true that everybody that's going to get saved will get saved? Absolutely. But the way they get saved is through human evangelism, not misapplied sovereignty. Meaning, we don't just get to sit back and say, God's going to do it. What we see in Scripture is that God is going to do it because he is going to involve us. He is going to involve us in his plans, and that's how his plans get accomplished. First thing under that, the gospel... Call demands our all. The gospel call demands our all. Look what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel calls us to a new master and a new mission. The gospel calls us to a new master and to a new mission. This word kurios, it's the word for Lord. Most of you know that in the Greek. Uh, This was a title that was supposed to be attributed in that culture only to Caesar. It was a designation of a supreme being that deserved worship. So the Christians were persecuted because they would not call Caesar Lord. Instead, they were calling Jesus Lord. It's also, and a lot of you are aware of this too, it's the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint for God in the Old Testament. So the correlation here in the New Testament is that to call Jesus Lord is to call him Yahweh. And even where Paul quotes here in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, it's an Old Testament passage talking about calling on Yahweh, calling on their concept of God the Father in the Old Testament. To now call upon Jesus as Lord shows how interconnected the Trinity is, shows the deity of who Jesus is. Um, and again, I like to give you these tidbits here because I know you encounter at times people who doubt the deity of Jesus, people that knock on your door out of zealousness for God that don't have correct knowledge about who Jesus is. And when you truly study Scripture, when you truly have full knowledge, you see that the testimony of the New Testament is that Christ is Yahweh. He is Lord. He is God. It's He who we call upon for our salvation. He's our new master. To call him Lord is to submit all of our wants, all of our desires, all of our ambitions to him. We enlist ourselves to his service. That's why we can't continue in sin like we've seen in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. Because we're no longer Lord of our life. We've submitted to a new Lord. We've taken new orders. Calls us to a new master. Calls us to a new mission doesn't change how we're supposed to live. We're still supposed to live obediently. We're still supposed to, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do a lot of the things that the law calls us to. But it's at a different motivation now. I'm not being obedient to earn God's favor. I'm, I'm obedient now, a new mission, because it's the best way to live life, and it's how I draw other people to him. I'm not inward focused now. I'm not doing things. I'm not checking things off because this is what I need to do to get God's favor. I'm doing things and living a certain way because I want to attract more and more people to him. It's a new master. It's a new mission. Next, the gospel response starts in the heart and it moves to the mouth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a, a, a wrestling in the heart with the facts, with the knowledge. Okay? I believe that Jesus came back from the dead. So, and I've been challenging my eighth graders in our Bible class right now. Christianity's not blind faith. It's based on real-time evidence. A real man named Jesus lived, and a real man named Jesus, nobody's been able to find his body. And so the explanation for what happened to that body leads us as Christians to say, he, he, was, he was risen from the dead. He came back, and when we believe that, it validates everything else that he said, everything else that he claimed about himself. So if I believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead, it necessarily leads me to confess that he is Lord. 
and that I'm obligated to follow him because he's the only one that can raise himself from the dead. Historically, he's the only one that made that claim and fulfilled that claim, which means the, the odds of him fulfilling all of his other claims are probably pretty good. Him coming back on the clouds to judge this earth. Him coming back to separate the followers of him from the non-followers of him. To usher the followers of him into eternity and to condemn those that do not follow him. So the logic here, it's not that this is a full-on discourse of the gospel. Obviously, there's other things that we believe. We have to believe that we're sinful We have to believe that we're not good enough. But what Paul is saying at the essence here is that if you believe rightly about Jesus, it will lead you to confess him as Lord and you will be saved. That knowledge working itself out in our heart leads us to a confession of the mouth. And if that's a genuine confession, it leads to a lifestyle devoted to him. Be there under the number three. The gospel is to be heard by all by being shared by all. The gospel is to be heard by all, by being shared by all. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. If the gospel is for all, it demands we take it to all. All that are supposed to be saved will be saved. We know that. But what Paul is highlighting here is that there's human responsibility in all that are being saved, being saved. There's a human element here that God has planned. This is how all that are supposed to be saved get saved. Is that the gospel goes forth, it goes out through human beings preaching the gospel. Paul gives us kind of the reverse order here. He doesn't start by saying God sends people and then those people go tell people and those people hear it and then people hear it and they get saved. He starts with the reverse order. He kind of backs it up and shows us the logic here. So we start with all that are supposed to get saved will get saved. We all believe that. We said, hopefully most of us said that last week. All that are supposed to get saved will get saved. That's a truth we can hang our hat on. God is going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. All that are going to get saved, get saved. Then Paul says, well, how are they going to get saved if they don't call on him and whom they're supposed to believe? And how are they to believe if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone tells them? And how are they going to tell them if they're not sent out? So he starts to to bring it back to the human responsibility aspect. He says, the only way that all that are supposed to get saved get saved is if you jump in and participate. And while we may not want to admit it, a lot of times we sit back and say, all that are going to get saved will get saved, whether I participate or not. And that's true. God's plan's not relying on you, except for the fact that he's chosen to rely on humans to do this. If you opt out, it still gets done but it still gets done through somebody telling. It just wasn't you. Now, if we're ever going to embrace this concept that all get saved, that are supposed to get saved, but we're responsible in it, I think it takes a radical shift across the board for how we're doing things within our church at all levels. 
Because I'm afraid that we're guilty not just of assuming that all people get saved because God wants them to get saved, whether I participate or not. There's a lot of other things in our church that we expect to get done whether we participate or not. And the fact is, is that, yeah, a lot of things are getting done, but how much more effective could they be if everybody was doing their part? Think about it this way. People that come to church here on Sunday morning, to our church gathering, historically hear the word preached. And I've heard enough feedback that hopefully everybody agrees here. The word is being preached effectively and and biblically. So we could make the statement, if you show up on a Sunday, you're going to hear the word taught. But how will the word be taught on a Sunday if I don't prepare myself to preach it? And how will I prepare myself to preach it if I don't set aside time to study? And how will I be able to set, a time, set aside time to study unless I'm diligent in all the other responsibilities that I have during the week to get those done so that on Saturday I'm freed up to study? And how will I maximize the set-aside time that I've set aside to study unless I set my alarm and get up and fight my tendency to want to sleep in because it's my day off? So the truth is, the word will be preached on Sunday if you show up on Sunday. But there's a human element there to make sure that happens. I have to prepare, which means I have to study, which means I have to take care of my responsibilities during the week. I have to set aside time where nothing else can get scheduled during that time on a Saturday, which is not always easy. Now I've got to get up and do it. Give me some, give me some other uh, situations here. God will be glorified through our church on Memorial Day. I believe that. But how will he be glorified unless people are there to serve? And how will people serve unless people show up? And how will people show up unless they sign up? And how will they sign up unless they clear their schedules? See, some of us sit back and say, oh, we're serving at Memorial Day. I don't have to be there because our church will be there. And our church will accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish, whether I show up or not. And for the most part, 99% of the time, you're probably right. Our church will glorify God by serving at Sonoy, whether you, Sonoy, whether you show up or not. But really, for it to happen, people have to clear their schedules and show up. Another one. All people will faithfully hear the word preached at Sovereign Hope. All people will faithfully hear the word preached at Sovereign Hope. How will all people hear unless all people can be in the service at some point? How will all people be in the service unless some don't always have to be in the nursery? How will some not always be in the nursery unless all do their part to serve in the nursery? How will all people do their part in the nursery unless they clear their schedules? See, there's some things that we assume are going to happen whether we jump in and participate or not. And we can't jump in on the big scale stuff until we commit to the little scale stuff. Going back to what we talked about earlier, we've got full knowledge, but we've got to make sure that the zeal's there with the knowledge. We can't just assume things will happen with or without our participation. Going back to where we were with the zeal and the knowledge aspect, Josh Patterson, who's, a, um, who's on staff at the Village Church with Matt Chandler, he says, before you launch a new ministry, it's vital 
to clearly know what this ministry will look like if all goes well. Let me read that again. Before you launch a new ministry, it's vital to clearly know what this ministry will look like if all goes well. Those of us that initially set out to start Sovereign Hope, we had a conversation about this. What does Sovereign Hope look like if all goes well? If we accomplish what we set out to accomplish, what does that look like? What does that look like? And in that conversation, what that looked like to us was a church of about 100, maybe 150, with people that have been discipled by leadership who are now discipling others that have been brought to Christ through the ministry of our church. The church is healthy. People are serving. People are using their gifts. Discipleship's happening. And we're at 150, and we say, you know what? It's time to plant another church. We set out from the very beginning. We didn't want to get bigger than 150. We didn't want to become some type of church where people could get lost and people weren't being discipled and people weren't being asked to serve. We didn't want a small group doing the bulk of the work. And so what it looked like for us, for this ministry to be doing what we wanted it to be doing if everything went well, was, it, was within three to five to maybe eight years starting another one of these and sending out people, faithful people in our church that are serving and using their giftedness and have embraced the concept of discipleship. Hey, we want to put you in Noonan, and we want to start another one of these. And we're sending out elders that have been raised up. We want to do the same thing in Fayetteville, the same thing in Griffin. We want Sonoy to be kind of the hub for all that. We want to keep sending people out. Go live here, and let's do this, and let's reach every area around Sonoy. Sonoy is not highly populated. The cities around us are. But in order to get to that point, in order to get to that point, we have to be a church that's full of knowledge and zealous and passionate with that knowledge where we're using our gifts and we're serving and we're buying into what we're trying to do here. And we can be counted upon to be here and to serve and to love. Because here's the thing, you can't separate passion for Christ from passion for the church. Because the church is Christ's body. And so all through the New Testament, we see if you want to love Christ, you have to love the church. That's how you, that's how you live that out. So they, the two can't be separated. Well, I, well, I'm passionate for Christ. I'm not just not passionate for the church. And that's kind of where we're going as a culture. People that want to say, yeah, I follow Christ. I just do it not with the church. And it's not possible. That's why church membership, when, when, those of you that have gone through church membership with us, that's why it's so important. Because the only way to be a faithful follower of Christ is to be uh, intertwined with the local church. So our, our passion for Christ is, is going to always be um, tied into our passion for the church. We can't go to the ends of the earth until we're taking care of business here. And the, and the things that I mentioned are petty stuff, like little stuff, like showing up to Memorial Day, showing up for, for service opportunities like the nursery here. That's the little stuff. We can't get to the bigger stuff until we're responsible with the little stuff. We're year three into our church plant, official launching of the church plant, really year four since we started meeting together. And there's still loose ends that we've got to get tied up if we're going to ever be a group that is that is... Uh, equipped and charged 
to do something special in this community. It takes buy-in from everybody. It takes buy-in from everybody. And God says it takes buy-in from, from my people if the gospel's going to go out. He says we can't just sit back and say, oh, that's going to get done. It's going to get done whether I participate or not. It's true. People's salvations are not hanging on your obedience. They will be saved, whether you're obedient or not. But what we find in Romans 10 is that there are, there are people that will be obedient, and we have the responsibility to be in that group that is. To get in, to be involved, like Paul says, I'm going to pray for this. I'm going to care about this. Yeah, he's sovereign. Yeah, he's in control. But I'm not going to just sit back and say, oh, that'll get done. I'm going to jump in and be part of how it does get done. Number four, the accountability of the gospel. Gospel condemnation is for those who reject, not the non-elect. Gospel condemnation is for those who reject the gospel, not those who are non-elect. Now, the reason I say that is because that's how Scripture presents it. What we find here now in, in Romans chapter 10 Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they never heard? So all these excuses are going to be answered. People are going to go. People are going to share. People are going to hear. People are going to respond. But does that, does that guarantee salvation? No. No, it doesn't guarantee salvation. Because look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Talking about Israel. Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I ask that Israel not understand. First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The accountability of the gospel. First, the gospel is not received by all, and the gospel is not obeyed by all. Israel had the Old Testament. They heard. And they had every opportunity to understand. The idea of them hearing their voices gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth, it's from Psalm 19.4. And it's really talking about the glory of the celestial um, stars that God has created going to the ends of the earth. Which in some ways communicates that God has communicated general revelation to the ends of the earth, and his intent now is for us to communicate special revelation to the ends of the earth. But in the context of Israel, that had happened. Israel had access to this. So we see in Romans 10, it's necessary to hear if you're going to get saved. You can't call upon somebody you don't know about. You can't put your faith and trust in somebody that you're unaware of. So people have to go. So now Paul asks the question, well, did, did somebody fail to go to Israel? Is that why they did not get saved? Is that why there's only a remnant because a bunch of them never heard? Paul says, no, they heard. Well, maybe they didn't understand. Maybe they heard it, but it was too confusing. Paul says, no. He says, the Gentiles understand it. Now, that would have resonated with Israel because the Gentiles view, or the Jewish people viewed the Gentiles as ignorant, um, unblessed people. Paul says, the Gentiles get this. They didn't seek me. They didn't have all the privileges, and yet this gospel thing makes sense to them. So it's not a lack of hearing. It's not a lack of understanding. So what is the problem? Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands 
to people that are non-elect. Nope. But of all Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God is not held responsible for man's sin and unbelief. The doctrine of election is not used as an excuse here for these people. Paul doesn't get to the end of it and say, man, I love Israel so much. And what's clear to me now is that the reason that they're not saved is because God didn't choose them to be saved. He gets to the end of it and says, I love Israel and I'm so grieved over the fact that the reason they're not saved is that they're disobedient. They heard it, they had every reason and every right to understand it, and they have rejected it. God has rejected Israel because they've rejected the gospel. Humans are always responsible for their rejection. Man is never described as unsaved because he's not elected. He's always described as unsaved because he did not believe. That's important for us as we... As we try to embrace the truth of Romans chapter 9 is that we realize man, the the flip side, the, the double predestination aspect is that while that may logically be true that if God chooses some, he necessarily doesn't choose others, people are never described in Scripture. They're never excused in Scripture because they're not in that elect group. They're always held accountable for their choices. They're always held accountable for their rejection. How does that mesh? I don't know. I don't know how God can be responsible and man can both be responsible at the same time. Told you last week, does God choose man for salvation? Yes. Does man choose God for salvation? Yes. That's what we see here. That's what we see here. There's tension here. Paul chooses not to answer all those questions for us. But one question that I want to try to answer, why is the gospel for everyone if only the elect will be saved? If the only the elect are going to be saved, why doesn't God... Uh, maximize the time that we have here and tell us who needs the gospel. Why doesn't he choose to do it? Because it, it, it's, it's, technically it's not really for everyone if not everyone's going to get saved. The answer that I believe Scripture gives to us is that God receives glory for punishing those who reject it. God continues to receive more and more glory by people rejecting the gospel so that when Jesus does return and Jesus does bring God's wrath, that God is glorified in the sense that he has removed all excuses and they have rejected. And so for us, it's a means of uh, empowerment really with the gospel is that I'm supposed to go share the gospel and God's going to be glorified whether people get saved or not because too many of us hesitate to share the gospel because we haven't seen people get saved and we base our zealousness for sharing the gospel on whether we're going to get a result that we think we're supposed to get. Hey, I'll go out and share if you tell me people are going to get saved. Remember we talked in the book of Jonah. It's not that, remember Jonah said, I don't want to go share the gospel with Nineveh because I think they will get saved. I told you, I don't go share the gospel because I don't think people will get saved. Too often times I don't have faith that people are going to get saved. What Romans 9 and 10 liberates us from is feeling like we're supposed to get people saved. I'm supposed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Some people will get saved, but maybe nobody ever gets saved by you sharing the gospel. Could you be content living your entire life, sharing the gospel more faithfully than you're doing now? I mean, you just really sell out. Okay, from here on out, I'm going to share the gospel 
but I'm going to be described as zealous with the gospel, and not one single person is going to get saved in the next 30, 40, 50 years. Could you be content with that? What Romans 9 leads us to is a contentment with that, because ultimately on the day of judgment, even if nobody stands there and says, I'm here because of you, I'm here because of you. God will still be glorified by all of your effort because as he pours out wrath on those that have rejected your gospel and he is shown to be merciful towards some and not merciful towards others, instead he gives them what they deserve, God will be glorified by your evangelistic effort. That's what we see here in Romans 9 and 10. You have a responsibility to opt into this. You have a responsibility because you have full knowledge Nobody's lacking knowledge here. Not that we have attained anything as far as, oh, we know all of Scripture, but we certainly have more than a sufficient knowledge of Scripture to lead to a zealous lifestyle with the gospel. If we're going to be a church that ever sends people, and that's the other, that's the other component of, of what does this ministry look like if all's going well, is that the planting of churches doesn't stop just here, that it goes overseas. You know, and Chris and I even have had some conversations. What would it look like for Sovereign Hope to plant a church in Uganda to work with his ministry? For us to opt into that takes us being responsible in light of God's sovereignty to see that we play a part in this. All people that are supposed to get saved will get saved. But they're not going to get saved absent from human evangelism. We're going to serve faithfully in Sonoy, even if only three of us show up. We'll work our tails off and make sure that the 12 to 6 shift is covered. All that are going to get saved will get saved. People will share the gospel. The only question is, are you going to be there to participate with it? Are you going to opt into what God is already going to do? Or will you be the bystander that sits back and says, I'm just going to watch it get done. I'm just going to watch it get done. I'm going to, I'm going to watch other people take that responsibility. Paul says, I understand sovereignty better than anybody, and I am broken for my kinsmen. I challenged you last week, who are your kinsmen? Who are the people that you're going to be broken for? Paul says, I'm praying for them. I'm caring for them. I'm loving them. I'm opting into God's plan. I'm not going to just sit back and rely on sovereignty. I'm going to embrace responsibility to participate in his sovereign plan being carried out. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to talk application. Father, we, we thank you that you're in control this morning and that you are definitely going to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish and that uh, any failure on our part is not going to be a failure uh, for your plan. That if we fail to participate, it's only going to lead to um, disappointment and, and a lack of joy in our own life. And that you'll continue to move forward and accomplish things without us. But God, we certainly want Sovereign Hope Church to opt into your plan. We want to be a part of your sovereign control over this earth to bring people that you knew before the foundations of this world to salvation. God, we'd rather be a part of your plan where you're working through us and not working in spite of us. So God, I pray that you would challenge us this morning. 
challenge us in the area of our zeal for this local church. Because God, we know ultimately that your, your structure for reaching the ends of the earth is through local churches, not just individuals. So God, God we don't want to be rogue Christians that are out kind of doing our own thing and thinking that we're advancing your kingdom. God, help us to be humble in knowing that we need to participate with others if we're going to be effective. So, Father, I pray that you would challenge us in, in, in applying the things that we're learning, that it wouldn't just be another week of knowledge, that you would use this knowledge to increase our zeal for you and help us to recognize that a zeal for you translates into a zeal for your local church and what your local church is seeking to accomplish. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for the application section here, I'm going to give you this question, and then I'm going to give you a tool to help start answering this question. The question is, how would you describe, define, and rate? How would you describe, define, and rate your zeal to see people know Christ? How would you describe, define, and rate your zeal to see people know Christ through the vehicle of our local church? How would you describe, define, and rate your zeal to see people know Christ through the vehicle of our local church? Now, I'm leaving that kind of open-ended in the sense it's not just the gospel going out to people that haven't heard it. Because some of the things that we described, if there's a real zeal to see people know Christ, it doesn't just have to be in the form of outreach. We included that. There's, there's a desire to, to be at things that we're doing as a local church. But then there's also a desire to be uh, available and be diligent within our local church so that people that are already Christians can continue to know Christ more. So we highlighted one aspect with the nursery. The nursery is a necessary evil, right? Like, the, the, the really mature, in a minute here, the really mature, only the really, really mature Christians are going to be able to say, I heart nursery, and I will be there every week, every week for the year. I love nursery that much. But someone who's zealous out of full knowledge can say, you know what? I'm in the nursery so that other people can hear about Christ. So that the same people don't have to continue to be in there every week and not hear about Christ. But I, take, I take ownership, I take responsibility to do my part in this body so that another aspect of the body doesn't suffer. So what I'm going to give you here, I'm going to get Topi and Tyson to pass these out. This is no way is ex inclusive to where this is the only things that need to be considered, but this is just kind of a, a tool to get you thinking as a means of application. So ultimately, I want you to describe in your own words, not to me, but to yourself, am I zealous for Christ through this church? And, and what does that mean for me to be zealous? How do I, let, me, let me write a paragraph. This is me being zealous. This is how I'm currently being zealous for this church. I want that to be your point of meditation as we leave today.
What does it look like for me to be zealous for this church? Now, these are some key areas, some key components here for you to kind of figure out and, and sort of use this to, to work towards like a statement for yourself. My attendance to Sunday morning worship. Obviously, we're not legalistic in the sense of you have to be here to be a good Christian. The, the law is ended. Okay, Nobody's keeping track of your attendance to determine if you're getting into heaven or not. You don't have to, you know, like at, at, uh, I think at Liberty now, they've changed it. You have to go to so many chapels to graduate in the course of four years. And so you keep track. Okay, I got enough, I can graduate. So it's not you got to get enough attendance here to, to be cleared when Jesus comes back. But obviously, church attendance is a byproduct of, I am zealous for you people. I want to be here for you people. And it's not a prideful thing for you to get to the point where you say, if I'm not there, then the church is hurting. Sounds prideful. Sounds prideful for Rachel to say, if I'm not there, you guys are missing out. But that's what Scripture says. If you're not here, we are missing out. Because you're a tool in my sanctification. And if you're not here, that tool's missing. It's why we drove through the night from our shark fishing trip to get back here for Sunday morning. Could have easily opted out and said, ah, we just won't be there. I had somebody covered, covered me to preach. But I don't miss a whole lot of Sundays, and it's not because I have to preach. I could, get, I could put more demands on Tyson and Adam to start preaching in my place. But I believe, not in a prideful way, that I'm a necessary component. I need to be here as much as I can be. My attendance to Sunday morning worship. Now, I didn't have a chance to write points on here, so you're gonna, you can write these in for yourself. Almost every week, that gets you four points. Most of the time, that's three points. Sometimes, that's two points. When nothing else is going on, that's one point. So as you get, Because you're going to score this for yourself at the bottom, and this is meant to be, again, humorous in the sense of, in no way is this the end-all zeal gauge that we're going to post on our wall and base everything on. It's just meant to be a tool to get you thinking. My consistency in serving at Sovereign Hope. I'm very reliable. You can count on me. That's four points. Mostly reliable. I do my best. That's three points. Sometimes I'm busy too, though. That's two points. When nothing else is going on, that's one point. My attendance with my accountability group. My group meets with me. That's four points. My group meets without me sometimes. That's three points. My group doesn't meet because of me. And that's where some of the groups are. Some of the groups have not met this calendar year because schedules can't get worked out. And I, I, I've done everything that I can to communicate you guys. If, if your schedules aren't working out, then let me know so we can change the groups. These groups are set up because we know accountability is needed in our church. That's two points. When nothing else is going on, that's one point. My faithfulness to give like I committed to give. I meet my commitment every month. That's four points. Meet my commitment most months. That's three points. Meet my commitment sometimes, that's two points. When I have enough left over, that's one point. My attendance at activities beyond Sunday worship, so things like small group, uh, men's and women's dinner, service projects, other events that we do, almost every time I'm there, I miss rarely, that's four points. Most of the time, three points. Sometimes it's two points. When nothing else is going on, that's one point. My commitment to fighting sin on my own and pursuing joy in Christ in combination with receiving help from the church. Low maintenance, Three points. Medium maintenance, two points. High maintenance, one point. My attitude with serving in the nursery. If you don't serve in the nursery, you can just pretend like you're in the nursery and give yourself four points. If you're struggling with some points in another area. 
I see the need is great. That's four points. I understand I'm needed. That's three points. I do it because I've been asked. That's two points. If I can get out of it, I will. That's one point. Should be zero points. My commitment to grow on my own so that I'm able to teach others. Three points, two points, one point. 30 to 25 points, you're probably where you ought to be. Still, obviously, grow. 24 to 18 points, you're not as zealous as you need to be, probably. And 16 to zero, what are you doing with your life? Just, I mean, what are you doing? For people to hear about Christ, that he talks about in Romans 10, for people to hear about Christ, for people to, to call upon the name of the Lord, necessitates people here, necessitates people go, necessitates people sent. You know who gets sent? As, as you know, if we're thinking of it from a, if we're thinking of it from a cross-cultural sense, the people they get sent are the mature people. Right? Like, we're not going to have a sign-up. Who wants to go live in Uganda with Chris? If we ever got to the point where we were going to send people to go live with Chris, you better believe that, that elder leadership's going to be instrumental in choosing the people that we send over with Chris. Because the last thing Chris needs is a headache on his hands of, not only am I responsible for baby Ugandans, i got baby Americans over here too that I'm trying to disciple. Right? So the people that get sent are mature people. This is how all this correlates. If we're going to be a church that not only is sending people in this area, but ultimately becomes a global sending church, it necessitates that our church has to have mature people. And you know what leads to the type of maturity that we're talking about that gets you overseas? It starts with the basics. Coming Sundays, participating in accountability, serving in little areas so that when when you're tasked to go overseas and serve in big areas, you've shown a, a, a means of faithfulness that, hey, this guy's a good person to send because they've done what they're supposed to do here. So don't look at these things as, wow, these are things that are really important to our church. No, these are the little things that we want to get to the big things because I want to be having conversations where, hey, Chris is getting ready to move. We need, we need a, a couple of people to go live with him. Mature people who have bought in that we know will buy into what's going over there. We need, a, we need 10 people to go plant a church in Uganda. The only way we get to that point, the only way that people that are supposed to get saved will get saved through our church is for us to be sending out mature people that are ingrained in God's word, that have found victory over sin, that are ready to go and work zealously for the gospel. And in order for us to have that, in order for us to get there, how are we going to have people that way? It necessitates all these little things falling into place. So my challenge to you as we leave today is not just to fill this out real quick and say, okay, that's where that's, I'm zealous apparently because I scored high on this. No, it's to, it's to go back to the question, how would you describe, define, and rate your zeal to see people know Christ through the vehicle of our local church? Are you zealous? Or are you just full of knowledge? And all of us obviously can grow in our zeal for knowing, for knowing Christ ourselves and for uh, seeing other people know Christ.
But I want you to be challenged to self-reflect this week. Where are you at in this process? How would you define it? How would you describe it? And if there's not a lot of description, if there's not a lot of definement, what steps can you take to change that? How can you opt in more to God's sovereign plan that he's wanting to accomplish globally through our local church? All right. Um, Questions or thoughts? Here, let me close this section out. Pray. I know um, a couple people got to leave early. Pray and then um, take questions, and then I'm going to give you a few announcements of opting in opportunities. Father, again, we thank you for your word. I pray that, um, God, that we would be challenged, not discouraged this morning or not offended this morning if, if there's areas where we can be uh, more responsible in. Instead, Father, I pray that we would be challenged that in light of your glory, in light of your sovereignty to do something, you have given us the glorious privilege to be a part of it. God, I want us, I want our church to have a passion, a passion for each other that leads us to, to do these, these little things. A passion for each other. That's ultimately what we're after, Father. We want to be zealous for people knowing about Christ. And we know that you can't have that without having these little things. In the same way, Father, we know that sanctification is what you desire, and so how we're sanctified is through reading the Bible and having devotions and praying. And so, Father, we recognize that church attendance, accountability attendance, attendance at service things, those don't necessarily lead to a proper zeal for you, but we know that we won't have a proper zeal for you without those things. So God, I pray that we would do our part to be responsible so that the Holy Spirit works in and through us to create that zeal so that ultimately, God, we become a church that sends people overseas to plant another church. Because in the end, it's it's those type of things that are going to count on that day when you return. God, we're thankful that you're going to save those that are supposed to get saved. We're thankful that their salvation is not resting squarely on our shoulders this morning. And yet, Father, we are thankful that you have chosen us to get the gospel to those that you want to save. Give us the, the zeal to opt in. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.